Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. of the morning dan and amy so yesterday and back of the nards back of the yards that is excuse me uh it happened again the investigation also reveals uh that a father was out there with his two children one the 21 year old the other a 15 year old both of whom have special needs and they were at the bus stop waiting to catch the bus to go to school Yes, and um, a 21-year-old was Jesus Riga, just months away from graduating high school. Yeah. Uh, and he was uh, shot three times, including once in the head. Uh, we'll be right back after these messages. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, as uh, we started saying... Chicago police are looking for two suspects after 21-year-old Jesus Riga, who is a nonverbal special needs individual, unique abilities individual, just months away from graduating high school, was shot in an apparent uh, misidentification by gangbangers of non-gangbangers, shot three times, including once in the head in the back of the yards. And this is uh, after... uh, alleged gangbangers yelled across the street to dad and his two sons saying, are you gang members or something to that effect? He calls 911. They open fire. He tries to get down and cover his sons. And unfortunately, his 21-year-old son, Jesus, who is uh, as last reported last night, undergoing surgery, was shot three times, including once in the head. And this morning, doctors are saying he may not, he may lose his vision. So he's nonverbal, special needs. With his little brother, who's 15 years old, who also has special needs, because when you have special needs, you could stay in high school until you're, um, at the latest, 22. And he, the dad was taking them to school, and here he is. Here's the father. Down, but he, he didn't understand at the time. And I tried to get to him as fast as I could. As soon as they stopped shooting, I ran to him and started holding the wound. So he put, put his one son, he covered his body with, that's what it was at the beginning that we missed. He covered his 15-year-old body and he was trying to cover his other somebody couldn't get him to him fast enough and uh he went through surgery last night and i it's just 
discussing like when is enough enough. I mean, it's three a trio went up to them and shot at them, and since he was nonverbal, he couldn't respond because he's not a gang member. He's not a gangbanger. And thirty nine shots were fired, Dan, on the shots uh, shot spotter. That's how many rounds were going. It's it's just it's war over there, and Alderman Lopez is there. We cannot protect or give cover to these individuals who did this um, because this young man deserves better. And he was no, saying that that's, that's profound. No, he's saying that people know who these three are, and that they should turn them in. Yeah, but that's I, profound too. Well, when is enough enough? <laughs> I mean, when's enough enough? You seen his picture too? It's just heartbreaking. I just it's I. I don't know if I lived in that neighborhood, but some people can't afford to move out. Oh, like it's uh, so much better in Lakeview? I know. It's the same thing. I know. It's <laughs> the whole town, the whole city is trash. It's a great city. It's too bad. It's too bad. It's a great city. It's all I hear. It's a great city. It's a great city because of the architecture. Because of the bean? It's a great city because of the uh, restaurants and artistic offerings. I mean, in part, that's what makes a a lovely city. And, yeah, the arts and entertainment and cultural offerings, sure. What about uh, the sort of foundational institutions when it comes to civilization? Is Chicago a great city? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636 DA, because I don't want to get in trouble like Darren Bailey did when he called Chicago a hellhole. I don't want to get in trouble because I don't want to be chastised by my betters and say, how dare you? How dare you, sir? How dare you call Chicago a hellhole? It's a great city with great people, is it? People are so offended by that. I'm like, well, it is. When was the last time anybody even saw anybody pull somebody over for a traffic stop? There's no officers anywhere. Well, uh, Well, I mean, there are some, well, come on. I mean, I live here. I don't see. I, I, we. I used to get. I would be happy if I got pulled over by a cop because I was on my cell phone. Um, I wouldn't be happy if you got pulled over by a cop because you're on your cell phone because that's a waste of their time. Yeah. Well, that's probably why they don't do it. Everyone's yeah. on their cell phone anyway. But I'm just saying, there's, you know, there's the police presence is not what it used to be. Yeah. Because that's... there's two thousand plus less cops on the street. Yeah. Well, that's part of it. We've got a mayor's uh, primary coming up in uh, six weeks, February twenty eighth. Who do you like? Does it matter? Do you care? Are you just um, counting days until you're sprung? I, some people clearly are not, and I don't know. Uh, more than half the city thinks the state and the country are on the right track, so there's a, a lot of people apparently enjoying it. I mean, until something terrible happens to somebody they care about, but as long as something terrible doesn't happen to something they care about, they're happy to blithely saunter about in the city. So this is why I say my first choice right now for mayor would be Willie Wilson. But if he doesn't make the runoff, then I'm definitely supporting Lori Lightfoot. Why? Definitely want, I Come definitely on, want Lori Lightfoot. Um, no, you want if, if, if right, Willie sorry. Wilson is not viable, then I want Lori Lightfoot because I want maximum punishment. Just like Kim Fox. Absolutely. More Kim Fox. I hope she runs for a third term in uh, 26 and wins more because uh, I want to eliminate any conversation about hope because a, the name on a door has changed when the policies won't. 
which has been the affliction of Chicago and Illinois for a few generations at least now. Just eliminate hope. Just embrace Lightfoot. Four more years of these last four years. That's what we. That's what my proposal would be, short of perhaps Willie Wilson. That's where I'm at. And then, frankly, it's tough. It's tough even to make that call. I'm. I'm leaning in the direction of maximum punishment, elimination of hope, because it's just not bad enough, and there's just not enough people saying you're not going to do this to me. And I don't know how to get the city there any other way. Do you? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six D A turnkey dot pro text line. If punishment works to deter crime, then punishment would ostensibly work to deter criminal political choices, wouldn't it? You'd think at some point, even for the habitual political choice offender. I I don't know where you go. Uh, other than doing this sort of performative hand-wringing and expressions of outrage mixed with despondency about the murder or barbaric act du jour. Maximum punishment. Maximum punishment. That's what's needed, isn't it? America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy talking about, um, well, this uh, yet another instance, the latest act of unadulterated depravity in the city of Chicago, this uh, shooting of a 21-year-old nonverbal, unique abilities young man who was set to graduate high school in Back of the Arts neighborhood yesterday when he, his brother, his father were misidentified as gangbangers by other gangbangers, apparently. That's according to Chicago police, and he's fighting for his life as we speak. Yeah, he was shot in the head, and they're saying um, if he does survive, he will lose his vision. So, which is horrible because he can't speak, and now he's not going to be able to see. So the question, um, you know, this is against the backdrop of a mayor's race on February 28th, or at least that's the election to decide who will, which two candidates will make the runoff that goes to April 4th, and you know, basically, where are you at? Are you in my camp where you're uh, inclined to support Lightfoot's reelection because maximum punishment is what is needed? It has to get much worse before there is receptivity to any system change in Chicago. Or do you want to hold out hope and try to go for the least worst candidate like Amy is doing in supporting Paul Vallis? Yeah. I mean, and, you know, you don't think that there'll be a change, uh, there'll be a cultural change. When Paul Vallis wins, he is going to fight crime. He is going to hire more police officers. He's going to get the police officers backs. He's going to change the school system. He's going to do school choice and then eventually get to to taxes. But crime is the number one issue. And yesterday was a graphic reminder of how sick and scary it is to live in this city. And he and his his little brother has special needs, too. Yeah. And they were going to school at 630 in the morning. When did gangbangers start? Shooting people at 630 in the morning. Busy days. Busy days. They got to get up early now, right, Dan, to get it all in. And they, they were flashing signs at him. And he can't, he's got special needs. And they're asking him if he was in a gang. And he didn't know what they were talking about. And his well, dad said that, too. 
and he tried to cover his son. He had to choose one son over the other to throw his body over. I mean, it's just, it doesn't end. Well, the good news is you got a, a ban on some scary-looking rifles oh, yeah. uh, that's uh, in, taken effect for now. And you got the prospect of the Safety Act coming online that's pending a Supreme Court adjudication of that matter, expected probably in March. Oh, uh, by the way, um, if you think um, those things are uh, you know, uh, irrelevant to harmful, you're right. And uh, again, just to sort of give some comparison to what's happening when you pursue the paths that we're pursuing, since we've got some of our friends in New York and California pursuing these same paths, uh, and when it comes to prosecutors' offices in Philadelphia and Baltimore and L.A., San Francisco, a lot of places, uh, out of New York, justice reforms, in quotation mark, forcing prosecutors to toss out 69% of New York City criminal cases, according to a new study, the new evidence law. But, yeah, that's what we need after we get done with pretrial detention reform, quote-unquote, because that's how it's pitched. We'll get into discovery reform uh, like New York City has. And, boy, oh, boy, the rate at which cases were dismissed citywide rose from 49% in 2019 to 69%. By mid-October of 2021, this according to a Manhattan Institute report, for misdemeanor cases, the increase was even more dramatic, jumping from 49% dismissal of cases to 82% during the same period. You wonder why police keep running into the same people on the streets. Mm. The uh, statute has correlated with a devastating rise in crime and a drop in arrest, according to the author of the study, Hannah Myers, who also is a former New York a city police department analyst adult felony arrests fell by 14 percent nyc shootings rose by 102 percent and murders by 51 percent that's one of those fox butterfield moments where the uh, predicate uh, helps you understand the objective uh, part of the sentence uh, so right Felony arrests are down, shootings and murders are way up. One is connected to the other. Yeah. As but we talked about with that. as we talked about with uh, John Lott yesterday, right? The 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 violence is concentrated in a relatively small amount of counties if you look at it if you look at the situation countrywide. However, the, those small amount of counties uh count Tens of millions of residents among them. And, uh, of course, overwhelmingly law-abiding. And that's just a victim pool for a small criminal class, habitual criminal class, that is being treated as um, misguided youths by the political establishment in those big urban centers that represent the small amount of counties where the a disproportionate amount of the crime occurs. So um, you can maybe understand why some suburbanites or exurbanites don't get it yet, but as, as I said, and we've said throughout the last year of litigating the Pritzker purge law and the policy choices in both in Chicago and around the country, um, you set up the same approach to law and order in the suburbs or the exurbs or even rural areas 
that is set up in Cook County, places like Cook County, then you will start to see the same results. Maybe not on scale, you know, but on a per capita basis, you will start to see the same results. There is no difference really between human beings in Chicago and human beings in the western suburbs or in central or southern Illinois when it comes to those who um, have no moral compunction about preying on others. And they will respond to the incentives that Johnny Law presents him. 312-642-5600, turnkey depro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. I mean, from this shoot, I don't know how it could get any worse. 39 rounds were fired. Three shots, Jesus, 21, well, one shot him in the head, one made it landed on his head. I mean, it's just, it's well, a we, war zone. Yes, and, and again, we have we do this every time there is a particularly <laughs> egregious yep. violent crime, and there's uh, a lot of tears and a lot of outrage and a lot of the same calls that have been made for literally decades, and then 48 hours from now, it's gone. That person's life is forever changed. Their family's lives are forever changed. But it's gone from our consciousness because, you know, I mean, and I'm not, this is not moralizing because we got to move on. Well, early voting starts a week from today, folks. Please do not reward bad behavior. Mayor Lightfoot is in way overhead. She does not have the police officers' backs. She never has. And she's let this city go to hell in a handbag. We are becoming Detroit. Walk, well, well uh, there's homeless camps everywhere. There's tents everywhere. Who even cares about that now? But even well, Michigan a, Avenue's boarded up. Yeah, but it's up. a great city. No, it's not. And I think you shouldn't vote for Wilson. I think you should vote for Paul Vallis. I'm not. I can't vote for anybody. Um, oh, that's right. And that's fine. But um, just a recent poll. I mean, just if, in, in case you 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 think that Lori Lightfoot isn't in the mix here, a recent poll had. Um, and again, I don't place too much stock. It's still very early, even though it's six weeks away. Uh, Chewy, this was reported in Cranes, the anti-business uh, business magazine for Chicago. Of course it is, because it's a great city. Uh, Chewy Garcia, 29. Lori Lightfoot, 21. Oh, God. Vallis, uh, Wilson. So, you know, it's a mix, those four candidates. And then Brandon Johnson is sort of a dark horse because of the teachers' union money he's got. This is a communist that the teachers' union put up as their candidate. Uh, Teachers got, union people vote. Sorry, he, he got four hundred grand from them, and so he may have the money to stage a, a you know, a late rally oh uh, if God. he can generate some awareness. And if I mean, it would it would take a lot, not just the teachers union apparatchiks, but also, you know, given the race identity politics of the city, which I hate, and the Democrat socialist identitarian voters love. Given that those racial politics, Brandon Johnson would need to have figure out a way to peel off uh, a fragmented black vote because of the number of black candidates in the race. That's not really where Lori Lightfoot's base is, though. So it's not like he has to peel away from her, which actually makes it more difficult. He's got to peel away from some of the other candidates, the Willie Wilsons and the Roderick Sawyers of the world, uh, the Cam Buckners. And that's a little bit more difficult. Um, Lori Lightfoot's bread is buttered, as people should know. Probably outsiders don't appreciate this because they just see, oh, she's a black female, so she must be wildly popular in the black community. Not really. Um, she'll get a percentage of the black vote, but her her base is the Mercedes Marxists on the lakefront and the gays, you know, the, the LGBTQ because of identity politics, which, again, 
I hate and I'm the bad guy. They love and they're the uniters. Okay, sure. Right. Okay, fine. I got it. So as I said, maximum punishment. Uh, Kevin Southside. Hey, good morning. Um, on your comment that Chicago is a hellhole and Amy's, that there aren't any cops. Okay, when I was a young patrolman back in 92, um, we were very aggressive. I worked on the south side. It was stop and frisk. Yeah. A lot less people were carrying guns. Um, so a lot less cops, Amy, you're right. And there are no more stop and frisk. Um, I mean, yeah, okay, the election's six months out, six weeks out. Lightfoot's on TV with a reporter asking her, why don't you let the police be the police? And she said, behind the podium, not on my watch. Um, to stop and frisk somebody now and do a, a, a street stop, we called it back then. you got to stop what you're doing, do your street stop, fill out a full sheet of paper, justify your cause eight ways to Sunday, or your bosses are on you. And the Lightfoot does not have the police's back, and neither do the higher-ups. Yeah. That's my comment after 30 years on a police department. You guys have a great day. Thanks for the call. I mean, during I mean, her time in office, she has made police the enemy. This was this was going on pre-Lightfoot under Tiny Dancer, though, too. The uh, vast reduction in stops after they started moving in the direction per pressure from Black Lives Matter Marxists and, uh, and you know, and the, all the varietals of Marxists in the city to um, to end the practice of stop and frisk and to burden street cops, like Kevin was saying, with paperwork that made it uh, made, made it too burdensome to and bothersome to even spend the time. You saw, I mean, I think it was Tiny Dancers last year, if I'm remembering correctly, that year over year, uh, police stops, vehicle stops, w- went down 90%. So that was the beginning of ushering in this new era of lawlessness, which, of course, Lightfoot has accelerated. Uh, Cream Puff Jim in Chicago, and that's how he is yeah. on the screen, so I'm not casting aspersions. No. Anyway, good morning. There's a saying in my family, anytime you leave Chicago, you're camping out. All my ancestors that are buried in, in, uh, around Chicago all made a terrific living in Chicago. And any time I was in any trouble anywhere around the world, I'd head back to Chicago. If I had to hitchhike, I'd head back to Chicago. Anyway, you guys have a good morning. Thank you. All right. Thanks for the call. Cream Puff Jim. That's, is that a street name, I wonder? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Jefferson Park. Hey, good morning, guys. You know, I'm with you, Dan. If, uh, you know, I'm going for Willie, and uh, if things don't work out, then either Lightfoot or uh, the other communist. Well, actually, there's a few communists, but, you know, the chew toy wouldn't be a good thing. Hey, you know what? This no, no, but, but see, here's the thing, Greg. If it gets to, if it was Lightfoot and Chewy, uh, then you have to go with Lightfoot. Yeah, because sure. Because if Chewy wins, then they're going to be like, oh, it's a new day. Look, there's yeah. a new face. So it's going to, then we're going to chart a different course, and we're not. So... Don't even give them the opportunity to spin that yarn. Just go. It's not a new day. We're not going in a different direction. We're going 100 miles an hour in the same one, which is right. You know, vertical. The other thing I wanted to say, Dan, was uh, the you know the uh, <clears throat> no more gun things is working. Two Sundays ago, uh, here in Jefferson Park, we had uh, on Sunday afternoon, two o'clock in the afternoon, two women, two women got robbed and stabbed. So you know. 
No more guns is working. We're starting to stab people now. But that's, you know, that's okay, right? Because it's well, working. Oh, people yeah, I, use other... You know, thanks for the call. Knives, cars. They use whatever they can to kill people. Fists. Well, I mean, uh, you know, you, you, you know, respect somebody who makes it personal. You know, takes the, to the time to make it personal. That sort of crime. I'm sure that um, uh, this is somebody who was, you know... Had some struggles, probably a uh, victim of systemic racism, perhaps the patriarchy. Um, showed a lot of promise in grade school. Was on the honor roll time or two. I suspect. I don't know. I'm just thinking what the profile is. And um, just needs a little bit of mentorship, alternative sentencing program, and uh, some job training. And he's going to turn his life around. Stop stabbing people. Right? Isn't that the story? That's what we're told, isn't it? Yeah, and you know what the problem is? Rich honkies like me aren't uh, paying our fair share. So if we could get the rich honkies like me, pay our fair share, then you fund these programs so that uh, the people out there stabbing women for their purses and so forth, or, I don't know, um, shooting a special needs kid in the head, you know, they get the, 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 the opportunities they need and the training and so on and so forth. And uh, they'll be captains of industry. Just you watch. Those are the fairy tales we like to tell in Chicago. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, uh, Dan and Amy. Apparently, there's a uh, celebrity jeopardy going on right now. A oh later boy. note, getting away from Chicago's uh, endemic violence. Celebrity jeopardy. Um, this is always painful, but um, perhaps uh, nothing more painful than um, what happened with this clue. The participants, <laughs> celebrity in quotation marks. Who were uh, these Candace, alleged celebrities? Sorry, uh, Candace Parker, you know the great female yeah. basketball player, uh, Tori Devito, who's an actress, I guess. Who's I don't know Never who that heard is. Of her. Yeah, and Patton Oswalt, who's a stand-up comedian. Here's the clue and the answers. The fifty states for three hundred, please. In Field of Dreams, a question is asked: oh Is this God. heaven? No, it's this midwestern state, also known as the Corn State. So easy, Tori. What is Wisconsin? <gasps> no. Candace, what is Nebraska? Oh, no. my God. Her dad went to University of Iowa. What is Iowa? Yeah. Iowa. Oh, my. Pat Oswald was smart enough to stay silent. <laughs> so uh, it reminds, embarrassing. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, that's now my favorite episode of Celebrity Jeopardy. Oh, okay. My second favorite, and I just like, it's so great they celebrities do this because they, they think they're smart and then they go on to just demonstrate how not true that is. But my, my, that's my favorite. And my second favorite was the, the one with, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds, Sean Connery. Animal sounds, condiments, and finally your ass or a hole in the ground. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, why don't you give me, uh, <clears throat> why don't you give me eight tit for 200? It's not eight tit. It's a petite, never mind. Let's just go to animal sounds for 600. This is the sound a doggy makes. Mr. Connery. Moo. 
No. Well, that's the sound your mother made last night. (laughs) Okay, that's not necessary. Ah. Burt Reynolds. Who is uh, Scooby-Doo? No. That was a funny dog, Scooby-Doo. He drove around a van and uh, solved mysteries. That is incorrect. No, that's correct. I remember, you had a pal, Scrappy-Doo. No. I uh, so miss Norm MacDonald. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. More KJP follies yesterday. White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre fielding, but not really fielding, questions from the D.C. press corps about... uh, well, the ongoing revelations surrounding the Biden handling of classified information, or I shouldn't ascribe it to Biden because he doesn't know anything about it. So the classified documents that were inadvertently placed in his home, in his garage, at his fake think tank that he knows nothing about, is not asking his lawyers about because he takes classified information very seriously and he wants a legal process to run its course. That's yeah. what I meant, of course. Of course, Dan. Um Good question posed to Corinne Jean-Pierre, just about propriety, the standard setting. You know, um, you're not commenting on anything because there's a legal process. Let me be very clear. And she's been very clear. She's not commenting on anything because there's a legal process. And we don't comment from this podium about ongoing DOJ investigations. Oh, I see. So then it was wrong when President Biden commented on 60 Minutes about an ongoing DOJ investigation into Trump? A reference, an interview that President Biden did in mid-September with 60 Minutes. And in that interview, he chided former President Trump for having in his possession classified documents. He called it irresponsible. First of all, do you think it was proper for President Biden to comment on an ongoing DOJ investigation? So I'm going to say this, uh, and I'm going to keep it really short today, as it relates to this particular issue, as it relates to an ongoing uh, legal matter, I'm going to refer you to Department of, Just- uh, Department of Justice in- with the- that specific, as it relates to uh, anything that you want to ask of us uh, about uh, this, uh, this legal matter, I would refer you to the White House Counsel uh, Office. I'm, I'm going to leave it there. I'm not going to go okay. into further. I just commented. I just commented. We're moving on. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I already answered your question. Go ahead. Well, I I did. Well, it's your it's your opinion. It's your opinion. It's your opinion. That is your opinion. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Was it wrong to for Biden to comment? Let me refer you to DOJ and the White House Office of Counsel. Um. I answered your question. Well, no, no, you didn't. Yes, you I did. did. No, you didn't. Well, that's no, your yeah, opinion. No, I did. Yes, it is. You know? No, it isn't. That it isn't. Yes, it is. I'm rubbering your glue. That's where about where it was going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, KJP wanted to keep it short, but the D.C. press corps didn't. And um, you'll uh, pick up a certain refrain that KJP falls back on. I think... Um, 
speaking of being chided, somebody in the Biden White House must have gotten to KJP and said, listen, um, just keep it to these couple of phrases. Um, I'm sure they were very pleasant about it, but it's clear that you are somebody that is very dangerous to us because you're not good at what you do. And we can't do anything about that. So what we can do is say, just repeat these two phrases. Kick it to DOJ, kick it to White House counsel, and call it a day. But that didn't mean there wasn't an effort. Understanding why I just said, questions about we should, procedure, we should, and I just said, and I just said to you, the White House Counsel's Office mm-hmm. will be able to address that question. Is yes. President Biden satisfied with the current SOP of handling classified materials here and turning them over to National Archives? Again, I will refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. They are the they are the people who would uh, be able to answer that question about classified so information. Just to be clear, from this point on. Are you not going to be taking questions about the classified documents? I have been very clear over and over again. We are going to be prudent here. Uh, we're going to be consistent. This particular matter is being uh, is being looked at. There's a legal process currently happening at the Department of Justice, and I'm going to refer you to the Department of Justice on any specifics to this particular case and anything that has to deal with um, our what we're doing here. Uh, I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office, and let me. Yeah, I'm enjoying this. I got to say, you know, grab a cup of coffee and sit down and watch it. Well, there's a little bit. There's play acting going on because, remember, they're all on the same side, but they have to keep up appearances. um, So it's less obvious to some, at least in this country, that one is not the comm shop of the other. And that's the case. But, you know, if you're going to Buffalo at least half the country into to believing that you're legitimate news outlets, that you're an actual a watchdog on the uh, other three estates, the fourth estate, that you are going to hold those in power accountable, that you are there to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. If you have to get, you keep up those appearances, then you have to go through this uh, persecution of KJP because she's just completely defenseless. I mean, she uh, really makes me miss... Uh Saki. No, I don't. Th- I don't know. I think she's. Um, um, Saki. Saki was. Um, you know, more of a bitch, and uh, Ouch. I like. Uh, I like KJP a little bit more. I, I really do, and I think so KJP is more entertaining. Yeah. Well, it's it's a, yeah. It's I like make, it's, no. It's hard to watch though because she's so bad at her job, and I always give buddy somebody a month to make sure you know. Give them a month. Maybe they could figure it out. She's never, ever going to figure it out. No. And by the way, Psaki wasn't that good either. And then she had a bad attitude about it. KJP seems like she's sort of um, lost in the woods. Yeah. I mean, she's it's sort of like that, like sort of like Joe Biden. She sort of has this Chauncey Gardner thing going on, oh. um, you know, and, and I like Peter Sellers movies. Um uh, So okay, that was reporter number one, reporter number two. And who, their names don't matter. They're fungible for the most part except for Ducey and a couple of others. A reporter, too. So the first one was, um, uh, you know, standard operating procedure for handling national security. Is that being reviewed now per, you know, classified documents being found anywhere Joe Biden, like a breadcrumb trail, anywhere he goes, there's classified documents in the wake. So that was one. Reporter, two is, um, so uh, is there going to be a look-see? Like, has national security been compromised at all by the... Uh, 
exposure of classified documents to people who didn't have security clearances. Like, I don't know, you know, Hunter. They didn't ask that, but that's an obvious ask. But on questions that you should be able to answer here that shouldn't have to go to any other agency or entity, can you tell us if there's any sort of assessment that has been planned or launched to determine if national security has been jeopardized at all? Again, that's for the Department of Justice. Why is it a DOJ question? And let's be clear, it's not your decision to make of what I can or can't answer from here. What I'm telling you is that we are respecting the process. We are being prudent from here. There is an investigation currently happening. And when there is, when there are investigations that are happening, that the DOJ is, is uh, currently reviewing or looking at, so we have been very consistent to say that you need to go to the Department of Justice. With NSC or with any other intelligence Again, agency? I would I refer you. I would, it's very, Let it's, me guess. It's very Department clear. of Justice? It, I, I just laid out. There, is no, there should be no confusion no here. There, there is a legal process happening, and I would refer you to the Department of Justice. Yeah, I thought you might. Um, uh, then uh, Reporter 3 took another angle. It's a pretty good one, actually. Okay, I can't wait to hear it. Uh, well, we did. I did take your instruction to talk to the Department of Justice, and uh, when I said that um, <laughs> you can answer my questions. You've all reached out to the Department of Justice. A law enforcement official tells NBC News the Justice Department has not told the White House that it cannot talk about the facts underlying the special counsel investigation Ooh. into classified documents. So trusting you've received that same information, understanding the desire to be prudent, then why, why can't you speak about the underlying facts? We've been very clear when it comes to even underlying facts, when it comes to specifics, when it comes to something that is under the purview, that is that the Department of Justice is looking at, especially legal matters, investigations, we do not comment from here, Peter. That has been consistent. So is the White House in talks right now to find someone either outside the White House or internally who can speak on behalf of the White House representing the special counsel office within the White House from this podium or any of those I would, talks? I would refer you to the White House counsel. I would refer you to the White House counsel uh, office on that. Good Wait. for Peter Alexander from NBC News. He did his homework. <laughs> yes. Good. Don't let this up because Biden's been running from the media for five days now. This will be the sixth day. And she clearly is just going to play this cat and mouse game until something happens. I don't know, until something bigger happens or until they get their act together over there. I just like Peter Alexander's uh, sort of complicated way of saying, hey, is there somebody else we could talk to? <laughs> um, and anybody um, back there behind can you, the curtain? Can you put somebody on contract? <laughs> uh, can, can, go over to Edelman and get one of the flacks over there to come and just be a contract spokesperson. Or... Um, uh, 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 John Kirby, is he available? Um, I'd refer you to the White House <laughs> Counsel's Office on that, of course. Mm. Um, now, there has been a little bit of updated reporting. Uh, Peter Ducey was on that yesterday uh, with respect to the search of the Biden premises. It wasn't really a, a search. It was Biden's lawyers going to pick up the classified documents, you know, in the vet, in the in the compartment next to the garage in the library right. and in the, the room next rumpus to the room and rumpus yeah room. right exactly and so on and so forth um so here's a uh, uh, Ducey explaining that it wasn't completely unsupervised yeah they did defer to biden's attorneys but then there were doj officials intermittently on site to pick up whatever classified documents these lawyers without security clearances came upon now we can report 
that there were Justice Department officials there. The Justice Department had folks go to the location that the classified material was found to retrieve it and take possession of it and then be on their way to go take the classified material and put it back where it is supposed to be. Just because that means that just because the FBI didn't go and send a bunch of agents with windbreakers uh, doesn't mean that the Biden lawyer's search was completely unsupervised the entire time. It doesn't sound like the Justice Department had folks there uh, throughout while people were going through every possible place that these documents could have been. But and the, the special counsel here at the White House, Richard Sauber, alluded to this in a statement on Saturday. He said that uh, he transferred the material to DOJ officials that accompanied him. So what that means is these DOJ officials did go to the spot at the Biden house where the material was that the Biden lawyers who do not have security clearances found, uh, and they took it. And so when Biden officials over the last few days here at the White House have said, they did everything the right way. This is a new detail in uh, the way they consider things to have been done right. Yeah, um, that's not exactly good enough. I mean, that's uh, nice that the DOJ official came to pick up the documents that the attorneys, uh, the right. Biden attorneys recovered. But, um, you know, I just wonder when when those DOJ, DOJ officials came and they're you know milling about having a smoke outside the Biden compound. Why so didn't they stay? Did they hear? Did they hear the humming of a shredder by any chance? <laughs> That's what I think. What do you hear that? Yeah, what is, is that, that coming from that? the second floor? Is that a vacuum cleaner? What? Uh huh. So I just don't I, trust any of them, and I don't trust the media because CBS and NBC knew about this story and they sat on it until recently. November second, first knew. batch. December twentieth, second batch. They knew that too, and they waited and waited and waited until after the midterms and a little time after. Oh, now it's Christmas holiday. Let's let ruffle any feathers but i think that they're doing abiding what they did to cuomo remember you know after all the nursing home deaths and the democrats wanted him out then they started finding women who we might have touched or put a you know a hand on their buttocks or the middle of their back they went i think that they went searching for that to try and bring him down which eventually he went down i think that this is their way of doing it to biden uh kicking him out of the party you know who the the who the they is. You know the 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 always the amorphous uh, shadowy they. Yeah, so it, it's an it's again it's a theory that's being been been bandied about for some time, well before actually these classified documents that ultimately they the amorphous they would find a way to usher him out. The powers that be uh, inside the uh, Joe Obama White House would uh, move him out because clearly he can't run again in twenty four. And this is the opportunity that presented itself, uh, perhaps, perhaps. One, one thing uh, James Freeman points out, I think, is, is good as well. be a good question. This is not part of a DOJ investigation. That's an underlying fact that I know KJP won't speak to. But um, since uh, the big guy, Mr. 10 percent, uh, President Biden, is claiming to have been completely in the dark about how classified documents ended up in his office, his home, his garage. Um, why doesn't he ask questions of his staff? Right. Doesn't he want, doesn't he want, he's not, he's not allowed to ask the lawyers, he says, about the contents of the documents, but certainly a inquisitive president who is 
someone who takes classified documents very seriously. He's made that point a number of times. Well, why wouldn't you just ask your staff how they got there? And then share that. Yeah, he threw them under a bus on Saturday when somebody leaked something to NBC News saying that he was upset with his aides for carelessly putting, um, you know, those documents together. So mm-hmm. why, yeah. is it, why is the Justice Department investigation necessary? He can obtain information from the people who work for him, can he? He, he? he has the power to figure this all out if we're to accept his premise. Take him at face value. Okay. All right. You, you can believe that. No. I'll tell you what. Um, why don't you find out and let us know? What about that? Right. Mm-hmm. Completely in the dark. Uh, Justice Department investigation. A legal process playing out. You're a fact finder. You're a truth seeker. You're a truth teller. That's what you tell us. Go find out. Go ask somebody. 312-642-5600. Turnkey.pro answer line. You can always reach us, too, on our text line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Steve and Huntley are in Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, morning, Dan and Navy. You two are terrific. Dan, you're right on. Oh, my gosh. Why isn't anybody asking them, hey, look, now that uh, you, we've found these documents all these times, uh, are there any more? Steve, you Steve. Know, have you done a search to see if Steve, there's any more? Steve, yeah. uh, Steve, Steve, I think we've been very clear on this. There's a legal process. Uh, we are, we've been transparent. We take classified documents very seriously. Uh, I'd refer you to the Department of Justice or the White House Counsel's Office for any answers to any inquiries you have. Well, and, and you know, the other thing then is, you know, Steve, 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 Steve. We, we, as I've said, <laughs> we've been very clear. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you, guys, for Thanks, all the Steve. good work Appreciate you did. It. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be more clear. Take this seriously. Sure, they do. Michael on the south side. Morning, Dan. Morning, Amy. Thank you both for taking my call. I, I know I will have to answer for this uh, emotion one day, but I got to say. I love watching Corrine Jean-Pierre squirm really? at the podium. I love it. Oh. When I think about all of the uh, the abuse that was heaped on Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Kelly, Kellyanne Conway, I, I feel that Corrine uh, Jean-Pierre squirming is simply is a good old-fashioned payback. I love it. Yeah, well, just Sanders think about all the intermittent. Oh, I'm sorry for interrupting, but Sanders was good at her job, and uh, Katie McInerney, she was the— Kaylee. Kaylee, excuse me. Shoot, I don't McEnany. think McEnany. Sorry, I always get they were good yeah, at their job because they're smart women. I don't think KJP is so smart. Mm. Well, that's just that's that's yeah. just the thing. But think about all the internet internet memes that would be floating around if any of the if 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 uh, any of the uh, if Kellyanne Conway or uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders or um, or the other woman had said the same thing to Corinne Jean Pierre. That was no woman. That was Sean Spicer. Yeah, thanks for the call, Michael. Yeah, Len in Highland Park. He got better. Well, first of all, first of all, you're only as smart as the information given to you. But uh, first, don't take away uh, Chauncey Gardner from Kamala Harris. She is Chauncey Gardner. Okay, yeah. listen to listen yeah. to the repetition in her sentences. If Chauncey Gardner um, was a prostitute, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, why don't they just boycott one day? Everyone, all everyone, get together 
it Why showed some, it? some 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 unity. And <laughs> don't ask any questions. Just sit there and don't ask questions and see what John, uh, uh, Juan Pierre does. Uh, it, actually, if I, thanks for the call. If I was if I was uh, like I don't know, yeah. But then you know you I, you ruin your access and you won't be called on in class and all these silly juvenile I'll things. Put you in the back of the room. Yeah. You take mind. my press pass away. Um, uh, you s- sit me next to you know John Gizzy there. Um, so here, here's the here. The, I would just go in there, and like if I was Ducey, um, uh, Madam Spokeshuman or whatever I'm supposed to call you. Um, is there a legal process going on? Could you describe the legal process and where I can get information about the legal process? I would like just ask questions to prompt her to give me the the, the bromide that I would then follow up with and and repeat back to her. Just like we're just like be like be a be a wall, and so just bounce back her phrases to her, and we can just do that all day. Do that for like an hour of just bouncing cliches back and forth, sort of trying to out-cliche the other one. How does she think today's going to be any different than yesterday or the day before or the day before that? I mean, P- Trump did not have press, his press people did not have, you know, media availabilities every day. But she even said that when she left, she's like, all right, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Why? Well, you know. You guys who like to watch are going to see her squirm again today. Because they're transparent. That's why they'll see her tomorrow so that she can repeat the same, you know, misdirectional rhetoric. You know, the uh, Michael on the South Side talking about retribution, Uh like, he, you know, sort of the the, this is the standard you set and now you're feeling it. That was the point that Dan Henninger made in his piece in The Wall Street Journal I thought were I thought was good. He writes, Democrats aren't merely in hell because of the Mar-a-Lago comparable. Ring fence the two document disputes, and normally they'd fade from view as a as procedural smoke. The Democrats are in pain because of the four-year political bonfire they lit and stoked from 2016 through 2020. There were moments through and after the Trump term when some of us mused the onslaught was over was over the top by any standard. Two impeachments. Now Joe Biden knows what it feels, and now knows what it feels like to be media clickbait for all the wrong reasons. This is the permanent politics of retribution. And it can get worse. The investigations of two special counsels will hang like two cement shoes waiting to drop across 23 and perhaps into the 24 presidential campaign. Potential candidates soon need to visit primary states to campaign and fundraise. But the frozen legal status of Trump and Biden will hamper that process. Um, He's right about that. And this is not a great place to be the permanent politics of retribution. But it's the direct result of the the 2016 to 2020 behavior and which is now extended into the last two years of the uh, of the last two years of the first two years, you know, being the first two years of Biden. But 2016 to 2020 is the standard they set. And now that's boomeranging that on them in part and perhaps even ultimately, which would be the greatest irony of all, benefiting Trump. Politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, on this installment of sports and politics, 
this flap over Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov, who refused to wear the LGBTQ plus jersey on LGBTQ plus jersey night in the NHL. It basically was a rainbow through their numbers. And then they had rainbow colored tape on their sticks. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's what uh, Provorov said to uh, me- the media about his decision. I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's all I'm going to say. Any, uh, like I said, that's all I'm going to comment on that. Um, if you have any hockey questions, I would like I would answer those. Just, uh, can you just clarify what religion? Hmm? religion? Yeah, right. So he's a Russian Orthodox, yeah. a Christian, and um, didn't want to sport the LGBTQ plus flag. So what do you what do you say to Ivan? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment and basically the Flyers then auctioned off those jerseys and the sticks and the proceeds went to a diverse community to help grow the game of hockey. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, if uh, you you're critical of Colin Kaepernick for or other NFLers for expressing themselves on the field kneeling during the anthem. Shouldn't you be critical of uh, Ivan Provorov for not going along with what the ownership wanted? Not going along with what the culture demands and uh, making a stand based on his personal religious beliefs? Right? If it's good for Ivan Provorov, isn't it good for Colin Kaepernick and those NFLers who took a knee or NBAers? I'm just surprised or, he didn't or get women's suspended. soccer team members yeah, and true. so on and so forth. Uh, but I'm surprised he didn't yeah. get suspended or, you know, I'm, I'm shocked that the NHL didn't impose any sanctions against him for not going out. Well, we'll see. It's still early. Okay. Uh, give you an example of uh, the sports press corps reaction. You can imagine sports press corps being an extension of the D.C. press corps. Uh, people who so desperately want to be taken seriously as journalists and commentators in the sports press corps. It's funny. They're funny. Uh, Sid Sashera is his name. He's the co-host of uh, Breakfast Television. It's a morning show in Toronto. You know, hockey is very popular in Canada. Oh, yeah. I, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, have yeah. you heard that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Northern Minnesota, too. Yeah, Michigan. Uh, he spoke for, well, the new Marxists in you know, Strange Brewland as well as here when he offered this diatribe. Hockey is for everyone, okay? The theme is not hockey is for everyone, dot, 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 unless you don't believe in gay rights, then do whatever you want. If the National Hockey League is gonna do this, if any league is gonna do this, do it properly or reevaluate what you're doing. Because there's not a lot of repercussions that I'm seeing from any league. Now it could change with the NHL. Could change with the NHL. I think you find the Flyers a million dollars for this. I'm not kidding. Figure this out and stop offending people on nights where it's not about that. It's supposed to be about inclusivity. The National Hockey League need to attack this and figure this out. Because what I heard last night was offensive and didn't make any sense. Because 
for instance, if that was a military night, okay? Right. If anyone in Canada or in the States on a military appreciation night wouldn't wear a jersey pregame, do you have any idea the uproar that would have happened on that? Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea the backlash? Do you have any idea what happened on social media? It's, it's, it's ridiculous what would well, happen. It was just a minute ago we were talking about the uproar that was happening with FIFA fever, where it's, if you were seen with so much as yeah. a rainbow anywhere, you had to fear for your life, imprisonment, yeah. or death. Yeah. Seriously. So And now here we are. I, I just think the NHL has to do something here. This is not good enough. This is not good enough. Hockey is for everyone, dot, 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 unless, unless you don't agree with gay rights, is not the phrasing of this. You're either in this or you're not. And one last point. Nothing scares me more than any human being who says, I'm not doing this because of my religious beliefs. Because when you looked in people's lives, you normally say that publicly, you'd throw up at what you saw. Oh, my. You would throw up at what you saw. And I have seen that a million times in a lot of different ways. So don't, don't give me that. With respect. Don't give me that because no one's perfect. With respect. All right? Don't, tell me, don't, don't feed me the religious beliefs line. And all of a sudden, the NHL is going to back off this. The National Hockey League today... Needs to find that organization a million dollars and reevaluate how they support gay rights. Because that is insulting. That is the number one trending topic in Canada. That is insulting what happened in Philadelphia. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. A lot there from those two deep thinkers uh, manning the breakfast, morning breakfast or breakfast morning or whatever, some ghastly show in Toronto. Um, don't give me the uh, personal religious beliefs bull jive because, you know, you so you hear somebody invoke their religious beliefs and you know that person's a hypocrite, probably even worse than somebody who doesn't have religious beliefs. And he's going to throw up. That's the implication. You know, we were just getting over the dingbat to his uh, right on the, on the desk there. We were just uh, we just had this FIFA mania where if you had so much had a rainbow flag on your on your jersey you could be arrested and so forth yeah um yeah, that that's those country rules and they decided that, to play because, soccer in a country that that rule is in place right that's cuz you're in cutter right so follow we're talking about the united states and we're talking about canada the canada has some approximation of the first amendment it's not nearly as strong as ours obviously but it has some pay on to free expression in their constitution um and the uh, also the comparison between military appreciation night and uh lgbtq plus night are those apples is that an apples to apples comparison what's the difference talking about men who fought for our freedoms and you're talking about just this narrative that they want to push. I mean, they want you, if you don't conform to their ideologies, they're going to come after you. Can't even compare them. And then like I'm pounding the desk like they have to do something now. The no, Pathway to Hockey Summit is an informational and networking event designed to encourage all individuals to consider a career in our game. And in particular, alert those who might not be familiar with hockey to the opportunities it offers, according to an NHL spokesman talking about an NHL event advertisement um, that uh, invites people, per the spokesman, to find out more about hockey. It's a career event for diverse job seekers. Participants must be 18 years of age or older, Yep. based in the U.S., identify as, identify, identify as female, black, Asian Pacific Islander, mm. 
Hispanic, Latino, indigenous, LGBTQIA+, and or a person with disability. Veterans are also welcome and encouraged to attend. The event uh, slated to occur uh, on February 2nd in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Well, um, you might be able to discern what's missing from their list of people who are invited to attend this career event for diverse job seekers. Honkies, in case you missed it. Uh, Ron DeSantis, he's the governor of Florida, where the event is taking place, Fort Lauderdale. Discrimination of any sort is not welcome in the state of Florida, and we do not abide the woke notion that discrimination should be overlooked if applied in a politically popular manner or against a politically unpopular demographic. We're fighting all discrimination in our schools and our workplaces, and we'll fight it in publicly accessible places of meeting or activity. We call upon the NHL to immediately remove and denounce the discriminatory prohibitions it has imposed on attendance to its 2023 Pathway to Hockey Summit. Remember, uh, the NHL uh, has also made the claim, you know, the front office PR types it did on social media. Trans women are women. Trans men are men. Non-binary identity is real. This is the NHL wading into this area. And so if the NHL wants to wade into this area and wants to uh, uh, express themselves and the owners want to express themselves, then... Ivan Povarov wants to express himself, too. And now, again, he could be this, these are private organizations and he can be uh, subject to disciplinary action per the terms of his employment with uh, the Philadelphia Flyers or with the NHL. It's fine. Uh, more it's more the cultural reaction that's interesting and the reaction as nicely encapsulated by these two dopes uh, from the Toronto morning show that you just heard. That's what I'm interested in. And you know why this all started? This is what I think. When they started allowing football players to wear pink in October for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I always fought back against it. I like, just keep your uniform. You wear a uniform for a reason. <clears throat> keep the uniform on. I just want to watch sports. I don't want to, you know, be, be have it commercialize more was saying, oh, go, go get your mammogram. I'll get my mammogram. I don't need to see a football player wear pink to get it. Because mm. then it morphed into other things. Now we're doing this, and now we're wearing rainbows. And now, you know. We, yeah. I don't know that breast cancer awareness was the gateway to this, to the, this, to, to these politics. But, I mean, I take your point. Scooter on the south side. Hey, good morning. Uh, first, I want to say I have nothing against the gay community. Oh, yeah, okay? of course. You have to say that, right? Well, yeah. Right, everybody um, has to say that. This, in, this defenseman for the Flyers, in his little speech there, he said that uh, it was his choice. Don't we have choice in this country? You know, it's our choice of speech? to be gay. It's our choice to do this. As long yeah. as he's not doing anything to hurt these people. He's hurt their feelings. I don't see what's wrong. Oh, there what you are you go. talking That's about? That's the biggest Scooter. sin ever. You're right, Dan. He's hurt their feelings, and uh, even more to the point, he's rejected their overture for allyship, and he is not celebrating their lifestyles and the choices they make. How dare he? He's being non—he's uh, being uninclusive, and there's no greater sin. Um, so, no, I, I mean, again, are people not picking up on this? Well, they're calling him. You know, he's hiding behind his religion. Now they're trying to take away his job. Are people you know? not picking up on this? 
the tolerance is imposed celebration. That's what tolerance has been redefined to actually mean. Jordan Antioch. Good morning. Um, a couple things on this. First off, you know, as far as the uniform, it's, this is my opinion. If you are a hockey player, I'm a garbage man. If the company that you work for, i.e. the Philadelphia Flyers, or the company I work for says you have to wear this, and it's part of your contract, it's part of the, the terms of your employment, yeah, then right. just wear it. If, it. if it's your stick and you're endorsed by a company, then don't put the tape on your stick. Fine. I get that. But And the second part of this is, the reason that you didn't see this with the military and you do the, the LGB whatever is because more people support the military than support this. And the outrage is because they're upset because, well, you supported them. And if you don't support us, everybody's going to see that nobody supports us. So you're, you have to support us so that everybody thinks that people support us. And that's the thing. Like you said, force compliance. The, your, your base is not there. So you want to force everybody to be your base. The third thing is, with this knucklehead in Canada, okay, you know, you, you, you fear things when you say, oh, well, the first thing I think about when somebody says about their religion, well, you know what the first thing I hear when somebody says what you said is I hear persecution. I hear that what's been going on for thousands of years. I, it, it's a war on religion, and that's the scarier part than somebody who says, I have faith, and this is where I'm going to stand, is somebody who wants to punish you for your faith. Thanks, yeah, let me add, yeah, thanks for culture. I, I, I would love to have this... Uh, this dope on the show. We'll try. We'll try to get him. Maybe I'll tweet at him, see if I can rile him up. Yeah. Um, really, so anytime you hear somebody invoke their religion, um, you know, your spidey senses are tingling because you look at that person and their life is a shambles and these are just hypocrites and they're just bigots uh, hiding behind religion, right? That's the implication. Really. So um, when uh, Cassius Clay... Uh, you know him as Muhammad Ali. When he uh, refused to enlist to to go to Vietnam, and he lost his heavyweight title, conscientious objector. Was that was that a scam? Is he? Uh, it was his personal life a, a mess, and that's why he was hiding behind his religion. He wasn't uh, truly a devout Muslim. He wasn't a conscientious objector who just opposed war on principle and so didn't want to participate in it. Did you respect that invocation of religion by a professional athlete? I wonder. I'd love to get his response to that. Brian in Lansing. Good morning. I just wanted to say I am a gay man, and I'm tired of all the uh, conformity. You know, they're pushing their agenda and everyone these days, and instead of getting people to be with the cause, they're actually causing animosity and creating enemies. Whether it's a bakery, whether it's a football team, I mean, you could even uh, go down to the lawmaker who wants to uh, pass it for uh, putting feminine products in the uh, bathroom because all of a sudden now uh, boys can have a cycle. It's ridiculous. Thanks for the call, Brian. Yeah, thanks, Appreciate Brian. that perspective. Yeah, it's not. I mean, that's something to remember. The gay, the gay community. Everybody's a part of a community. Well, some people are less a part of a community than they, than they're, than they actually, than uh, you would. They're described to be. You know, they're not monolithic. Different viewpoints. Right. Right. Yeah. Belief in peaceful pluralism, like Brian and Lansing. 
So, right. That's that's mainly what we're talking about here. That's why it's a cultural question more so than, a, you know, a legal one. Um, it's the cultural response that what is that's that's what's important. Hey, we got a great text message. Would they be going after this hockey player if his religion was Islam? Well, there's something else to. Well, right. Yes. And that's a good point. And it, there's something else too here the the military to to um, to to the LGBTQIA pride flag thing. Military is service, right? It's a commitment you made to serve others on behalf of all. How is that the same thing as being compelled to celebrate uh, people's identity? I mean, so this is the so so the same thing. It's like we have Black People Night and Latino People Night and uh, Asian People Night and so on and so forth. I mean, the, it's just it's just cheap identity politics. That's well, all it is. Marketing because you want more people to come. Like they have Dog Night. They want people. No, to- it's not. No, 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 no. It's no? not like Dog Night. It's politics. It's like we're pushing a political agenda. It's like we're part of the. Uh, the, the righteousness brigades in the culture. They're folding in and imposing. It's identity politics, which has permeated all sectors of our culture, including sports. It's the, and the last thing that will fall, the last place that it will fall, and, you know, it, it's starting to fall. Please see Leah Thomas in the pool is that sports, which is the last meritocracy, will not be. And to the extent that there is not significant minority participation, well, then it's all hands on deck, like you see with the NHL, because it's, right, 90-whatever, 5% white because of all those, you know, Canucks uh, that populate the league. Frank Arlington Heights. Hi, good morning. You know, I used to really be into sports in the 90s, early 2000s. I used to go to the bars all the time, watch football, watch basketball, everything. I would do that. And, you know, really since 9-11, these sports have gotten way too into politics, even the military stuff. I mean, you go to a Cubs game and, and they, they have, you know, the hero of the military stuff. You know, I, I know why we're doing it. They serve. But it's just like sports should be about sports. That's it. You go there to watch the game. I don't want to see any politics of any kind. I, I agree with you. It's, it's, a, it's a big, it's a big turn off. Thanks for the call, Frank. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I, I prefer that as well to, for to be a sanctuary from politics, but there are no such sanctuaries, and uh, that's mainly because of the rapaciousness of the left and the cowardice of cultural conservatives to stand up and say you're not going to do this to us and to things we care about and to people we care about. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, in case you don't know much about Larry Fink, who is the head of BlackRock, uh, or in case you don't appreciate how much of a smug prick he is, he uh, helped us out by sitting down for an interview with Bloomberg oh, okay. to talk about uh, ESG, which he is one of the principal advocates of, the environmental, social governance of corporations, turning... 
companies into political actors uh, where they funnel some of their profits to the political left. And, uh, you know, they get some return through proper rent-seeking behavior. How's it going, Larry? You okay? All the slings and arrows you'd have to you've had to suffer for being out and proud in in advance of ESG. Do you think inflation has peaked? Oh, very much so. I think inflation is going to drop very, very quickly. Uh, in fact, I, I believe many of us will be surprised how quickly it will fall. The problem is it will fall very quickly. So the nine to four will be the easy part. And then it's going to get very difficult to get inflation back yeah. to price stability. So, uh, But at the moment, I think the initial phase will be a very rapid decline in inflation. So what does it mean for central banks? If- mm, that's not the clip. Having a bit of... T- technical problems here this morning i apologize but uh the essential gist of what uh, larry fink had to say was that uh it's well worth it it's been overblown it's been surprising to him the personal attacks he has suffered but uh, even though there's been some high profile pullout of uh, pension fund money from states like louisiana and florida to the tune of about four billion worry not because uh, it's been $4 billion in outflows and $200 billion in inflows in 2022, said Larry Fink. So uh, there's a, a lot more leftist control of government in there. He didn't say it quite these terms, but I'm translating. There's a lot more leftist-controlled government out there that's happy to funnel money to outfits like mine, where we'll in turn funnel some of it back to their favorite political initiatives. For more on this, please to be joined by Christopher Whalen, investment banker and chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, author of Ford Men from Inspiration to Enterprise, and editor of the Institutional Risk Analyst. Christopher Whalen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. You're talking about one of my favorite subjects. Good morning, Amy. Yeah, and I'm sure your favorite people, Larry Fink. What a hero. Uh, no, Larry is a twit. He should have shown courage <laughs> and pushed back. And he didn't. Uh, the whole business community has shown a total lack of guts when it comes to ESG. And, and my friends in the ratings community, Moody's, S&P, KBRA, all of them jumped into the mosh pit with the left. And it's, it's a confused mess. The funny part about ESG is you would never really put any of the components together. But because they had this kind of governance thing going on, they decided to throw the E and the S in there, too, and just latch on to it like some kind of a mutant uh, did, you know, so, bacteria. So speaking of that, I mean, did, did, is, is the genesis of this, uh, you know, that it mutated, as you described, to ESG, is the genesis of this like Sarbanes-Oxley? Basically, yes, in a strange way. Uh, we never really implemented uh, Sarbanes-Oxley other than just lip service. But then they decided to staple these new proteins of, you know, environmental and sustainability to what was essentially a corporate governance rule for accounting firms. Okay, that's how strange this is. So, you know, ultimately, it like you were describing beautifully, Dan. It, it took on a life of its own, and the false narrative, whether you talk about environmentalism or electric vehicles or whatever it is, now comes. 
you know, pouring out of this ESG thing. Uh, and I think the only way we kill it is by getting a Republican majority in the Congress and in the White House and ignoring it, just oh, legislated out of existence. De- develop that a little bit more um, in terms of ESG, not not the political piece of it, but I hear what you're saying, of course. But but ESG, so for people that are still trying to grapple with its impact, um, yeah, it's uh, BlackRock's doing great, and um, and I and, you know, and my position in BlackRock is doing great too. So what do I care about ESG? What what is the impact on the economy and uh, on the direction of, of our economy? Well, the first impact, Dan, is a huge misallocation of resources. You know, we should not be pursuing EVs with lithium batteries. That's a total waste of time. It's a retrograde technology that Edison and Ford discarded 100 years ago when Edison said, no, use gasoline. And batteries haven't changed. You know, the, the motors are more efficient. The electronics are more efficient. And keep in mind, the whole efficiency of electric comes from the motors. So if I have to go out and use coal or some other unsustainable source to produce electricity to charge my batteries, then what have I accomplished? Right. You know, there are a lot of internal combustion engines out there that are so efficient now that you might ask yourself, why are we using electric for these applications, especially trucks? I mean, you would never use a battery to move a truck around, but we do. Elon Musk built one just so he could show it to us. But we live in this aspirational age, the age of idiocy, I call it, where we see things we want to do, but the technology doesn't support it yet. You know, we don't have sustainability in this country. We can't run the country on solar panels. We just don't have the technology yet. But the politicians have decided to kidnap the narrative and take us to this fantasy land, right? It's going to cost a lot of money. Wait till people are sitting in California in the summertime in the dark because they don't have enough load to keep the grid up. Well, there's that's also there's not enough charging stations. I mean, I recently oh, traveled and there was people that were lined up to you know charge their vehicle overnight while they slept, but they 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 were I saw a lock because there was not enough. Yeah, well, there's three hundred sixty billion dollars in the Inflation Reduction Act to to fix that. But the, the question well, is, hurry. what if there were enough charging stations? Is that a good outcome? No, no, the cost would be prohibitive. And remember, you have to take care of them. It's not just building the charging station. You have to maintain it. You have to make sure it's working, that that 220 line is not going to kill somebody. Um, You know, little trivial things like that, right? So we don't have nearly enough commitment in the U.S. or other nations to charge batteries on a large scale. And remember, when we had covid and everybody's behavior pattern changed, and they were working from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of states had to tell people, don't charge your car during the day because you're going to take the grid down. If you put too much load on the grid and it drops down below 50 cycles, it stops working. It just guess- It's a binary thing, yes or no, right? So we have to accommodate that now. And you've seen both the telephone company and the electric company have to rebalance their resources in order to accommodate the fact that half the people are staying home and working. Well, uh, Chris Whalen, I I have some good news for you on the energy front, and it came from Al Gore at the World Economic Forum yesterday. Uh, Take a listen to uh, Al Gore address some of the concerns you're raising. If you look at all the new electricity generation installed worldwide, 90% of it was renewable. 
It's now the cheapest source of electricity in almost the entire uh, planet. Uh, secondly, uh, electric vehicles for the transportation sector. The penetration has reached the 10% level in multiple geographies. That's the point where you often see an inflection uh, going much higher. Norway's already at 50%. All the automakers are going in that direction. Business uh, is leading. Andrew and Mark, of course, uh, are two wonderful examples. There are many others. And in the uh, WEF this year, I have noticed a, a huge increase in the amount of passion and, uh, and attention being paid by CEOs and other business leaders. It is for real. But as the Secretary General said in his brilliant speech uh, earlier today, we are not winning. The crisis is still getting worse. But uh, we are coming together, uh, the uh, corporate world coming together with visionaries like Al Gore, and uh, we're, we're, we're getting there. So uh, um, you can, you know, stop uh, underwriting those coal mines now, Chris. Uh, no, no. Look, I, we live in a strange time. It's very similar to the 1920s. I don't think people spend nearly enough time pondering the similarities in these two periods, uh, both of which followed major events, World War I and the last century and COVID in this century. And, it conf- you know, people are confused. And they listen to people like Al Gore and they think, oh, you know, he's hopeful. But the reality is, is that, no, 10% utilization of EVs just means that we've misallocated enough resources to build enough cars with lithium batteries and sell them to credulous people uh, who will have to replace those cars and those batteries at very, very substantial cost. You know, I just, I think it's a shame. Years from now, we're going to look back on this period, Dan, and just shake our head and say, what in the world are we taking? Uh, you know, what are they putting in the water, Dan? Maybe you can shed some light on that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it, I don't, not enough fluoride, too much fluoride. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> but if the, we had Henry Ford sitting here, he would be laughing at us. If we had Edison sitting here with us this morning, he would be laughing at us for our foolishness and our ignorance of science. And that's the problem with Al Gore. He, he's just a cheerleader. Well, at at best, he's a cheerleader. At worst, he's something uh, much more nefarious. But but here's the thing, too, since the topic is energy. I mean, this is what is in part, along with food, when the two are connected, of course, uh, what is really uh, putting a crimp in household budgets and expects to do so for some time, despite the you know inflation ticking down. Well, you want to solve the Larry Fink problem and all these other big organizations. We need a Republican who takes antitrust to heart, not as a consumer issue, which, you know, has cheapened it and belittled it, but as a political issue. When you have somebody with a company as big as BlackRock run by somebody like Larry Fink, you need to break it up. That's the answer. Hmm. You all of these large corporations that have gotten too big to govern and start to affect politics, right? That's the issue. Wait, but the, I mean, I, I suppose, uh, you know, sort of philosophically, I recoil at that. Uh, but the only al- other alternative, it seems to me, would be to gra- vastly reduce the size and scope and expanse of government so that th- people like Larry Fink couldn't be so effective and build such empires through so much rent seeking. 
But as long as there's as long as there's all this this government money sloshing around, there's there's going to be, uh, you know, that a level of rent seeking that we see. No, but listen, humans tend to move to aggregation. They don't like free markets. Humans like rigged markets. They like things like crypto, which is a rigged market, right? They're not interested in competition. So it takes force and it takes will to keep your markets diverse, to keep a large number of participants. And if somebody tries to aggregate them and consolidate them to the point where there is no competition, effectively, then you break them up. You use the Sherman Act. It's a big hammer, but it's a good hammer. But BlackRock is not BlackRock is not without competition, for example. No, no, but they're so big that they can affect markets. They're so big that they can destroy value for their clients and then just put them in another strategy next year and say, oops, I'm sorry, because once Larry's got your money, the odds are he's going to keep it. You know what I mean? It's sticky. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. So these guys are no different than the trusts of a century ago. They just look different. You know, but they have the same political power. And that's the thing that conservatives need to embrace. I think a libertarian conservative populist that's not run necessarily by a former real estate developer from New York uh, could work if it was enlightened instead of being crazy. You know, I'm a big TR fan. Teddy's still my favorite president. Okay. All right. You're going to resuscitate the Bull Moose Party, are you, out there? In the, uh, well, when you're in New York, we will go to Keene's Chop House, and I will show you the Bull Moose Room. Very, oh, I would love that. Place. Very yeah, good. You sounds oh. like a date. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah, I could come along and chaperone. Then we go watch the Rangers. Yes. No, there we go. The only reason to go to New York City is to watch hockey. Well, well as, long as, as, as long as we have our LGBTQ plus jerseys on. And our oh, stick. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. please. Hey, our mayor is becoming a conservative hero compared to the rest of this crowd. <laughs> yeah, As I hear there's no no more room at the end for uh, migrants for coming uh, across the southern border in New York City, according to Eric Adams, right? Listen, we should be p- taking people out of New York and resettling them to other communities where they can find decent housing. That's the reality. Okay. New York is like London in the 16th century. We need to redevelop lots of it, just bulldoze it. Smells the same too. Yeah. The the office buildings on the east side. What are we going to do? Look at Third Avenue from the 30s up into the 60s. What are we going to do with all those buildings that are empty? Huh? You know, skate park. We could have the largest Westie uh, you know, training center. Yeah. Little you... people chase for small dogs. You know, uh, what are we going to do with all this space that's underutilized? Like, well, lost, on the one hand, we misallocate. No, but think about it. We misallocate resources to things that don't matter, and then we don't build decent housing for our citizens. What's that about? You know? There's no way to make New York affordable. It's like Chicago. How do you make Chicago affordable with the political structure? You can't. He is Christopher Whalen, investment banker, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, author of Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise, and editor for the Institutional Risk Analyst. Christopher Whalen, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560. The answer. Uh, 
top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, we were talking with Chris Whalen about uh, some of what Al Gore had to say at the World Economic Forum yesterday. Day two of this august meeting of the people who have assembled to save the planet for us and I think from us, too. John Kerry making that note. Our greens are on opening day. He's just tickled to be part of the this group of uh, superhumans who are going to save the planet. You, we heard, we played the clip of Gore prattling on, making some very dubious claims about where renewable energies are and where electric vehicles are going. And then after that, he went full Greta Thunberg and uh, started uh, chastising the uh. world, really, using his platform to paint, uh, well, his consistently apocalyptic viewpoint, no matter how many times it's been disproven, and uh, challenging those uh, of us who are recalcitrant to uh, go back to pre-industrial revolution America to do better. Up All these promises of the last few years to cut emissions, emissions are still going up. When are we going to bring these emissions down? And, and just to put the science in a slightly different context, people are familiar with that thin blue line that the uh, astronauts bring back in their pictures from space. That's the, that's the part of the atmosphere that has oxygen, the troposphere, uh, and it's only five to seven kilometers thick. That's what we're using as an open sewer. If you could drive a car straight up in the air at interstate highway speeds, you'd get to the top of that blue line in five minutes. And all the greenhouse gas pollution would be below you. We're still putting 162 million tons into it every single day. And the accumulated amount is now trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every single day on the Earth. That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this century. Look at the xenophobia and political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees. What about a billion? We would lose our capacity for self-governance on this world. We have to act. Uh, And then he went on to say this. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Mayor. Real (laughs) wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. Steve Malloy, founder of JunkScience.com, member of President Trump's EPA transition team, and author of Scare Pollution, Why and How to Fix the the EPA, joins us now. Steve, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, what do we want? We want to save the troposphere. When do we want to do it right now? <laughs> yeah, you know, well, what I think is particularly funny, past the boiling oceans, um, is, you know, his Al Gore's claim that global warming is like 600,000 Hiroshima-type atomic bombs going off every day. I, I figure since he's been, you know, using that line, uh, we, we've survived 1.3 billion Hiroshima bombings. But we're still here. So I, I don't know at what point he stops believing his own BS. 
You know, um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released uh, year-end data for 2022 last week, and that data shows that over the past eight years, the period when we have added uh, 14% of all man-made CO2 to the atmosphere, uh, there has been no global warming. In fact, there has been global cooling. And, you know, you got to remember that the global warming con, as Al Gore will be happy to point out, is if you drive to work, you're warming the planet. If you uh, have a cheeseburger, you're warming the planet. If you're using any electricity, you're warming the planet. But yet we've had 450 billion tons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and no warming. So what does that mean? Well, and there was some good news last week, and the mainstream media didn't pick up on it, that the United Nations report said that the ozone is slowly healing over Antarctica. Yeah. So why well, why did nobody celebrate that? That's good stuff, huh? Well, you know, <laughs> so you know, ozone depletion was the original atmospheric hoax. Um, you know, I talked with Al Gore 15 years ago about this, and you know, he admitted to me that you know the purpose of the Montreal Protocol, which was the treaty to ban all these refrigerants that were supposedly destroying the ozone layer, the purpose was to show that you could get a, a global environmental treaty. It was not to fix the ozone layer because the ozone layer was not having a problem. Uh, that was, you know, that was the original hoax. Hey, tell, tell is, is that a, is that a combustion engine I hear? Because uh, that better be yes, it is. That better be disabled. If that's a combustion engine, what are you doing? I think I are think it's Al Gore. Are you trying to create rain bombs, Steve Malloy? Atmospheric rivers. Uh, what about the rain bombs? And also, too, we've got a problem. We've got uh, the World Bank is headed by a climate denier. This is more from Al Gore. Headed by a climate denier. So, you know, we don't have time for your blah, blah, blah to invoke the prescient words of uh, Greta Thunberg, Steve. We've got the head of the World Bank's a climate denier. We've got Hiroshima nuclear uh, atomic bombs going off. We've got rain bombs. We've got boiling oceans and so forth. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, so the rate, you know, in California, they've gotten a lot of rain. It's like, what's that all about? Well, you know, from time to time, that happens in California. Um, you know, famously, California was flooded like this in December, January 1861. You know, that's way before coal plants, SUVs, and cheeseburgers. Uh, I don't think, you know, there's no natural disaster uh, that can be tied with emissions. There's no trend in natural disasters that correlates with emissions. This whole thing is a giant hoax that has been made up so that, you know, John Kerry and Al Gore and his buddies at the World Economic Forum can rule the world. These guys have lied about everything. They've never been correct. Uh, it is astonishing to me that people still listen to them after all these years. And, uh, the, you know, the context of this at the World Economic Forum, too, is important because it's not just John Kerry and Al Gore, you know, a couple of uh, political scavengers. Um, it's uh, all those who underwrite the Al Gores and the John Kerrys. So, yes, the status, those in positions of power in in Western governments, but then the uh, the combining of the government power with the corporate power. And this is why. Right. You, you pay attention to what what's happening there is because there's a lot of power being wielded and uh, it could be wielded on you, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah, and it will be wielded on us. I mean, 
the you know the left has uh, you know one of the things I've been working on for twenty thirty years now is how the left has been uh, you know attacking corporate America and they have gone from attacking corporate America to taking over corporate America. So uh, you know the left has completely infiltrated the financial sector like BlackRock, Bank of America. Vanguard, all, states, all the big banks, all the financial institutions, and they're all pushing for this, you know, net zero by 2050. And you know, net zero by 2050, of course, net zero is impossible. Um, something that was just admitted recently by the electric utility industry, but that that's not going to stop them from trying to get there. And trying to get there, they're going to destroy our standard of living. They're going to destroy our freedoms. Uh, and all all that's going to happen is that they're going to increase their own you know power, prestige, and wealth at our expense. Uh, another yeah, right. So COVID zero, net zero, all these right. abs- absolutist right. positions, and 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 then and then the the cry, you know, Al Gore talking about um, a mass uh, refugee uh, crisis and so forth. Um, and and that would engender authoritarianism. The mass refugee crisis in places uh, like South America is because of dictatorships like Maduro's in Venezuela. I mean, it's just everything is, of course, reverse flowed uh, when it comes to this discussion. And right, the we we have to get to something we can't get to, and you know we're gonna break a few eggs if you know what I mean in trying to get there, as we've seen pursued with zero covid stop the slow the spread type policies over the last three years another target though uh was uh the ngos non-governmental organizations not a target by davos but a target uh that needs protection from those at davos richard edelman was one of those from you know the edelman huge pr operation uh, was one of one of those who said you know we need to stand our ground on esg we need to fight back against uh conservatives uh, republicans that are uh raising uh the specter of issues with esg you know he uh, said you guys talking about n- non-governmental organizations that are used by uh, gates and soros and so many to advance their agenda you guys are great at punching, but terrible at taking a punch. You have to learn two things. One is to preempt. When they're going to punch you, you got to know they're going to punch. And you say, why are they punching us? We call it pre-bunking. And uh, the, <laughs> the other is, is when they hit you and they're inaccurate, hit back, don't take it. Right? Wonder, wow, profound advice from the PR maven Richard Edelman. What a clown show this is. Um, but but the uh, that other piece of it, the NGOs, and how much money is funneled by... Uh, these billionaire leftists through non-governmental organizations to do what corporate America or the government can't do. And we've seen this. It's, yeah. speaking of, and we've seen this just one more example. We've seen this at the border. It's actually the Greg, uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, has raised the specter. These NGOs that are facilitating illegal migrants into this country um, in contravention of immigration law, they're funded. These are the sorts of organizations that are funded by the sorts of people like Soros and Bill Gates, and they're serving an extra governmental uh, function, which is actually to break the law. And they should be investigated. And this is their attempt to say we need to protect these NGOs that are working around things like, you know, the law. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, the NGOs are, in fact, working with the cartels to, you know, flood our borders for, you know, what purpose? George Soros doesn't care if he destroys America. Uh, You know, this whole problem with, you know, activists taking over NGOs, 
for you know political purposes and corporations. Um, you know, one overlooked uh, part of this is the media. Um, you know, I did a report last year highlighting the fact that the Associated Press, which is you know like the, the you know the oldest wire service, a venerated wire service. Um, has been has been paid or is being paid millions of dollars by left wing NGOs to report just one side of the climate debate, and then I think a couple of weeks ago uh, Fox News reported that you know it's also the Washington Post um, and you know a whole series of big newspapers across the country. And, I mean, you know, this is this is a concerted effort by the left, which you know only exists to do this. Um, you know, to, to take over our world and, and they'll use anything they can, COVID, climate, I mean, whatever it is, you know, it's going to be gas stoves, right? right? They just want to tell us how to the live. final frontier. So Steve from JunkScience.com, <laughs> we're just learning this morning from our good friends over at WirePoints that uh, there's legislation in the works to put 10 to 12 wind turbines in Lake Michigan. So the turbines, you know, it's going to cost at least five times as much as putting them on land, but... Do they generate any energy whatsoever? Well, yeah, I mean, bit. they can generate electricity, but the point is, you know, at what cost? I think it's very important. This has been completely missed by everybody in the media. Late last year, the electric utility industry issued a report saying that there's no combination of wind, solar, batteries, nuclear power, dams, you know, electrification, uh, or energy efficiency. There's no combination of that stuff that gets us to the, you know, Al Gore goal of net zero. None. So I don't even know why we're going down this road because windmills, solar, all these things just make electricity pointlessly more expensive. And when you take that and you apply that to like poor countries, that means they get, they don't get electricity at all. Steve Malloy, founder of JunkScience.com, member of President Trump's EPA transition team, author of Scare Pollution, Why and How to Fix the EPA. Steve, thanks for joining us. As always, appreciate it. All right, Dan. Thanks. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Of the morning, Dan and Amy, our uh, moral, intellectual superiors gathering in the World Economic Forum, kicked it off the other yes, the other uh, the other day. We talked about it yesterday uh, with a uh, disinformation panel panel on disinformation that, ironically, was offering a lot of examples of disinformation, yeah. although they weren't calling it that. Yeah, this was moderated by a. Mr. Mr. Disinformation himself. Well, the magic cue ball that used to work at CNN before even they could no longer stand him, apparently. Um, But anyway, this is uh, the the more important part of it with a fungible Democrat Socialist Congressman as one of the panelists was this uh, discussion about um, the regulation of speech and um, the disturbing comments of the European Commission's Vice President for Transparency and Values, good God, 
Václav Havel spinning in his grave listening to his countrymen say the things that she said, not to mention have the titles that she had. May want to peruse Power of the Powerless there, uh, Miss, talking about how the the hate speech laws in the European Commission has promulgated will soon be coming to America. And um, uh, though I recoil at the notion, she may very well be right because there's a lot of people in this country who now understand our First Amendment freedoms, not to be as restraints on government, but as animating government to ensure those rights through content moderation. Or, as we have the government doing with Facebook and Twitter, now revealed, utilizing private entities to do privately what they couldn't do through state power, at least not legitimately, because of protections like the First Amendment. And so it's going to be, of course, I believe in people's right to free expression. Of course, I believe in free speech, except if it's hate speech. Who defines what hate speech is? I do. And my friends at Twitter and Facebook and in government. Right. Have you Hmm. heard anybody on the left ever complaining about government intervention in big tech? No, they're just quiet about it. No, their complaints are only in the direction of you're not intervening enough. <laughs> the silencing is not comprehensive enough. You, We have a new list of a thousand accounts that need to be banned. And, of course, then it's really easy to cherry pick examples that underscore the hypocrisy based on the standards even their setting when you have, for example, the Ayatollah in charge in Iran uh, the one of the leading state sponsors of terror in the world, so says our State Department, his account stays up at Twitter. And, you know, um, Alex Berenson, a former New York Times reporter, his account has to go at Twitter. Hard to reconcile those. For more on this uh, general topic of um, discussion, debate, content moderation, government suppression, Pleased to be joined by Nolan Higdon. He's a university lecturer of history and media studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. The Banana Slugs. Yes. Uh, co-author of Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. Nolan Higdon, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And go Banana Slugs. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Very Great good. Great t-shirts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Critical media literacy. We're hearing that phrase a lot, too, these days. Media literacy. In point of fact, you've got um, governors like uh, Phil Murphy in New Jersey, like J.B. Pritzker in Illinois, pushing media literacy as part of the K-12 through curriculum. Um, what does media literacy mean in your mind? What does that term mean? Well, you'll, you'll notice that it, I had the word critical in front of it, and it's to make a distinction between the media literacy I'm advocating for versus what passes for media literacy in other other circles. So the, the critical approach wants to look at, you know, the power dynamics, who's behind creating this media, what purpose does it serve, how can we use this media to better serve democracy and further social justice, where a lot of the other media literacy is, is corporate media literacy. It's teaching you how to use and normalize digital corporate tools, how to depend on corporate platforms. And we're not advocating for that when we come from the critical perspective. We want to hold those corporations accountable and governments accountable when we analyze and use media. So, so you would like to see more uh, transparency in terms of the 
uh, business model uh, and and even editorial process or 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 the analyzation the the analyzing of the the power behind media develop that more for us. Yeah, for sure. Rather than just, uh, you know, appreciate the beauty or respect the the writing style or uh, the visuals in a media text, whether it be a video or news article or whatever, look at the process of who created it, what what decisions were made, what messages are they trying to send, what what Mm -hmm. purposes do do those things serve? Those are the the critical questions to ask. And, And a moment ago, you were talking rightly about Censorship. Well, well, critical media literacy is a better solution to issues of hate speech or disinformation, and it empowers individuals to make determinations about the veracity of information. It doesn't empower unaccountable actors in big tech or government officials to determine what's true and false for the people. How important are the uh, have have the Twitter files? Those disclosures been in your view in terms of advancing this flag of critical media literacy and um, and perhaps um, uh, engendering more skepticism about uh, a a handful of individuals, particularly under the auspices of the state, being in the business of content moderation? Well, it's kind of it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, those of us who had been reporting that this was going on, this has given us more more evidence to demonstrate uh, this this censorship by proxy that is happening um, by big tech. Um, I would like to see more of the files to illustrate how leftists have also been censored in digital spaces. I think there's been a, a dearth of that in the Twitter files. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as changing minds, unfortunately, we have such a you know fragmented media system that if you're attuned to these issues, you're reading the Twitter files and you're, you're gaining more information. But if you're someone who is skeptical of the critiques of Twitter or you're skeptical of the journalists who are releasing them, there's plenty of media out there that are attacking the messenger. Uh, so someone like Matt Taibbi is being, you know, derided all over legacy media uh, for much of the audience. That means that they're not even going to pay attention to the Twitter files because they assume if it's associated with Matt Taibbi, it must be bad. And I think that's a problem we have to overcome as these files are released. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's ironic because uh, most of the conduits for the release of these Twitter files are left or or center left. I mean, Schellenberger has been a man of his lo- of the left, an environmental activist his entire life, as he describes himself. Um, Barry Weiss is sort of like m- maybe a soft Republican, but you know, there's she's she's sort of swings uh, on both sides of that center line. Um, and then Taibbi, of course, who wrote a book deriding Trump <laughs> for gosh, oh, good. Boy. So, I mean, it, it, it's almost like it's it, right. You attack the source because um, I don't want to have to confront that the substance of what the source is saying, which is, of course, the same thing that's done uh, by, by the D.C. press corps uh, with respect to conservative news outlets writ large. It's all. That conservative news outlets writ large are just tools of Donald Trump or conservative politicians or their uh, repositories of hate. So that means that it means I don't have to confront the views expressed or the reporting done on issues of K through 12 education or uh, any other policy area. Yeah, exactly. The, the the nuanced explanation you just provided doesn't exist in legacy media. If If you are someone who is to the left of the Democratic Party, they just act like you either don't exist or you are a Republican. Um, just like if you're to the right of some of the Republicans in, in traditional legacy 
conservative media, they, they call you a rhino or act like you don't exist. So uh, someone like, you know, Taibbi coming from the left to, to show the problems with censorship is in direct contradiction to what a lot of Democratic Party media has been saying. So as a result, he's labeled as a Republican and the audiences are expected to dismiss the evidence he's providing in his reporting. Well, what about what, where was the, you know, the the fire in the belly for the government and big tech colluding to, you know, shape public discourse? And Americans didn't really seem there's no one seems that upset about it. Yeah, it's quite, um, quite surprising. It might be a, you know, poor indicator of, of what's to come. Um, you know, I was, you know, sort of developing my political ideology during the Bush years as a, you know, young 20 something year old, um, our, we were trying to protect free speech from the conservatives, uh, who were using the war on terror and other mechanisms to, to silence people. Um, and now, you know, it's totally flipped. Now the, a lot of the liberal United States is joined in that and thinking that censorship's okay sometimes are not that big of a problem. And I think it's really a bad sign of where your democracy is at is when we're debating how much censorship to have versus how to stop censorship from occurring. Well, right. And, and to the extent we're debating at all, right. I mean, um, it, this has been afoot for a long time, which is why this uh, piece that uh, Harvard University history professor James Hankins wrote earlier in this week grabbed my attention. Uh, the idea of, of Kevin McCarthy using his position as Speaker of the House to bring in experts from both perspectives on a public policy issue the way Buckley did in Firing Line, you know, to bring in uh, whatever, p- pick pick your uh, environmental uh, person, Al Gore, John Kerry, or, or whoever you want, and put them up against Bjorn Lumberg or Patrick Moore, and have them debate uh, in the the well of the House uh, the issues of climate change and energy policy, and let the American people see them side by side discussing the issues on the merits. That happens almost nowhere. Uh, today and so the debates are siloed and that's not much of a debate no for sure uh and and you know contributing to the the problem as well as i think that uh americans have you know a a healthy skepticism of of abuses of government and that's what a lot of the bill of rights are aimed at but the fact that they're using big tech or other entities to uh, override people's rights has led to some confusion but i think it's important for audiences to to imagine that Imagine if the federal government sent Twitter execs into your home and it, you know, ignored your Fourth Amendment rights to illegal searches and seizures. You know, you'd be outraged. Right. Um, similarly, you should be outraged when they're using Twitter or other, any other platform to override your First Amendment rights to protection of free speech. So I think we need to, to make that, that case that um, you can you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. You can be skeptical of government and big tech. Yeah, no, that for sure. I mean, that's a good comparison to make it concrete. I like that. Um, but but what about uh, the uh, the journalists? Well, journalists, um, employees of uh, the DC press corps outlets, for example, um, they they position themselves not as journalists, even though they term themselves that. They position themselves as like a vanguard class for. Uh, to, pr- to preserve our democracy, what they call our democracy. It's actually a representative republic. But, um, and everything is about their protecting and anyone who disagrees is a threat. That binary, and then they recoil at being called the enemy of the people. Um, that, that binary uh, doesn't engender much trust either. And, um, uh, and, and, and so for all the talk about we need to uh, 
you know, get beyond our tribalism and so on and so forth. Well, you're forcing everybody into a bucket. Either you agree with me and you're with me or you don't and you're an insurrectionist. You're a threat to democracy. Yeah. And this is, you know, this has proved really good for uh, ratings uh, for legacy cable media. And it's proved really good for subscribers for, for legacy um, newspapers have now gone digital in that when you make audiences feel like they're the good guy and the other side is the quote unquote bad guy, and you confirm the, the view of your audiences and deride the view of the bad guy, um, they'll keep subscribing. They'll keep tuning in. And they've made this dichotomy of, you know, blue versus red um, to base that, that model on. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of audiences see the world. I mean, polls show that America's number one fear of Americans, um, you know, more than climate change, more than terrorism. It, it, it's really difficult to have a democracy when it's not that we disagree on policy or disagree on perspectives, but you getting elected will ruin my way of life. That's a whole different ballgame. And, and any sort of Democrat or, or representative republic really is going to struggle when the public has a hatred for each other versus just disagreements. What's your perspective on state tax, you know, state funding, taxpayer funding of news outlets? Like, uh, and I don't just mean NPR, but I do include NPR. But then when NPR does something like goes and buys the Sun Times, Chicago Sun Times. Is that is that is that yeah. good? Is that or are these? I mean, the, in another country, we'd call that state-run media. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm an advocate for it. I think you should have multiple uh, modes of finance, um, ways of financing media. You know, public media, corporate media, independently funded media, subscriber-based media. Um, the idea is that these news outlets will hold each other accountable by trying to scoop stories and find, you know, sources to prove other reporting incorrect. Uh, but right now our news media is dominated by a handful of corporations and there's really no, no accountability within the system. A moment ago you were talking about these like elites or Brian Stelter and folks like this. Well, th there's no, there's no accountability for these people when they screw up. I mean, Chris Cuomo, right. Um, right. you know, advocating for his brother on air and then gets a job at News Nation. Judith Miller leading us to the Iraq War gets a job at Fox News. Brian Stelter is teaching journalism at elite universities, oh, which is just laughable. Right. Um, there, there's right. no no accountability. But the the state a funding argument, interestingly, this comes up in interviews I have with journalists, and they say, well aren't you worried that state funding will, you know, affect the reporting? And it's interesting to turn around and ask them, like, well, aren't you worried your corporate funding affects your reporting? Yeah, right. And usually you get silence on the other end of the line. Okay. I mean, that's that's an it's, it's interesting point uh, for a larger discussion uh, on another time, but we, uh, at another time, but we do appreciate it. Nolan Higdon, University Lecturer of History and Media Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, the co-author of the book, Let's Agree to Disagree, a Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy. Let's Agree to Disagree is the book. Pick it up. Uh, Nolan Higdon, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, in the Biden family, the uh, apple doesn't far fall from the tree. You can see why uh, Hunter Biden was so reckless with his laptops after you see the way that uh, Mr. 10%, the big guy, 
Joe Biden handles classified documents, right? Oh, that's right. Well, uh, the uh, man who uh, changed the story on Biden Inc., really, is John Paul McIsaac. He is the repair shop owner who Hunter Biden went to, you know, randomly, to fix his laptops after they, and yes, there were multiple laptops, fix his laptops after they were, uh, had suffered some liquid damage. Uh, I don't even want to know about that. Neither do I. Please. Let's move on. Wait till you hear what his password is. Oh, my God. John Paul McIsaac has uh, got a new book out, American Injustice, My Battle to Expose the Truth. John Paul McIsaac, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Uh, by the way, there are some excerpts from uh, John Paul's book uh, being published in the New York Times. But, you know, I mean, let's go. Buy, buy, the, buy the book. Buy the guy's book, too. You can read the experts, but buy the guy's book. All right, John Paul. So let's start at the beginning. You're trying to close up and in walks Hunter Biden. Yep. Uh, that was April 12th of 2019. I was, uh, it, it was a Friday night. I was very excited to get out of the shop. Uh, unfortunately, when Hunter shot, uh, showed up with three liquid damaged laptops, I knew my evening was uh, going to change. I didn't know my whole life was going to change. Did you know it was him? I mean, did you recognize him? I, I'm visually impaired. So at first, I didn't know who he was because I never really paid attention to what the Biden offspring looked like. Uh, so when he came in, I standard customer check-in procedure is when I found out who he was, when I asked for his first name and last name. Uh, I also kind of put everything together when one of the laptops had a Bo Biden sticker on it. So, mm. uh, but back then his dad wasn't running for president. It was like two weeks before his dad announced. So this was just some drunk kid who was trying to get memories off of his, what I assumed was his deceased brother's laptops. Wait, do oh, you he, smell alcohol on his breath? He was drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, Maybe you know, he spilled the, some beer on it. No, the crack makes you thirsty. Um, so uh, then you, um, uh, so, so three laptops, and how many were salvageable? One was a complete write-off. Uh, again, I, I felt bad for Hunter, so I gave him a keyboard so he could facilitate his own backup of the second laptop. The third one was the one that I had to check in that I recovered the data from. And he failed to pay for it, failed to pick up, and then that's the one I eventually gave to the FBI. What was the password on that one? Uh, I don't know. Is this a family-oriented show? It is, yeah. You can't say it. Uh, but, what, but, no, you text me what the password was. Well, <laughs> well um, it's um, oh, anal sex 969, but it's not sex. Oh. A, a euphemism for sex. Right? I, I, knew, th- I knew this was going to get gross the, the more I checked the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's, that's a, that was a, but that was his password, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah Anal sex sixty nine. Um, and um, and once you got into that laptop, what did you happen upon? Well, during the data, if if a data recovery process is fully automated, I would not even see what's on the data. I would just let the software go and do its forensic clone and, and be done with it. Unfortunately, because this is liquid damage, I had to manually drag and drop folders and files because the computer kept shutting down. And during that process of manually copying data and verifying what was copied, that's when I realized that this was not Bo's computer, this was Hunter's. And the guy that was in my shop that previous night was also the guy that was starring in a lot of the homemade porn. So uh, it was gross, but again, it wasn't, I didn't see a national security threat there. I I saw a lot of money exchanging hands, but again, this, this this guy wasn't. This guy's dad wasn't running for president. So I just I did the job. I called him, told him to come pick it up, 
he never came and picked it up, never paid for it. And then after his dad announced his candidacy and things progressed, I realized I was sitting on a time bomb. And someday somebody's going to find that piece of paper in Hunter's possession saying that I was allowed to do what I did. And somebody was going to come looking for that laptop and come looking for me. So did you call the FBI then? Uh, I called the FBI after it became my property. Uh, actually, I sent my father out because uh, I was worried about good old, old boy politics. I only live about 10 miles from Joe's house. So I, I sent my father, who's a retired colonel in the Air Force, to reach out to the FBI in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where they live, oh. to alert them to the existence of the laptop and to provide me with some form of security or safety should somebody come looking for it. But wait, let's, uh, so let's so let, let rewind a second, though. Um by the way, I love the quip in there. Once you come upon a file, as you're transferring the files, you're recovering the files, that uh, indicates uh, his taxable income for the last several taxable years. You're you're like, and it's, you know, in the millions of dollars. You're like, and this guy can't afford a backup drive? Great. I love that. Um, very commonsensical. But, but what was it that you saw that you said, um, oh, this is going to be a problem. Uh, the people are going to come looking for me to get it because, I mean, yeah, the – the the porn the, the home porn video is not a good look, but I mean that's not a national security issue. So what did you see that prompted you to take the next steps and get your dad involved and get this get uh, the FBI contacted? Well, initially I saw a document during the data transfer that was titled "Income," and when I inspected the document, uh, one line kind of stuck out. It's, uh, it was from his accountant, basically saying, "Well, Hunter, you can't live off of five hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, so we're going to have to." borrow, quote, money from this other business that he had set up. And it just looked really shady. And I remember seeing Burisma mentioned several times in that document. And I later in the summer, as Burisma started to show up in the, the news cycles, and this is the summer of 2019, I did a deep dive in the laptop. And then that's when I saw this blatant pay-for-play scheme running out of the office of the vice president. And the members in this pay-for-play scheme included our current adversaries, China, Russia. I mean, the war in Ukraine feels like deja vu because uh, the same players are involved and we're sending billions of dollars into Ukraine again. Was there so anything it, directly linking to then, well, President Biden? Uh, yeah, yeah. The one email, especially what I call the Burisma grift, uh, was the email between Hunter and Devin that was basically outlining their entire strategy for how to capitalize off of all this money that's being poured into Ukraine during the first Ukraine-Russia war. And, you know, Hunter was describing, you know, he can't control his father's actions or what he's going to say, but we're going we're gonna to market him as um, uh, value-added so we can show Burisma what we bring to the table. And it was, uh, and then the, the next day, Devin went to... Uh, the White House and had to you're, sit down with Joe. So, you're, talking about, you're talking about Devin Archer, a business partner of Hunter Biden's, who then subsequently uh, was um, sentenced to a, a year and a day in prison. Yep, that guy. Mm-hmm. And so, so, it's, so, yeah, this is important. So, you, you know, you, you get the laptops, you fix the laptops, you call them to come pick it up. So that's in April. And then and you're saying you don't go back and look at the laptop that had all the documents you recovered files you recovered until months later when you remember seeing like a keyword here a keyword there and now there's news reports about this and so that's when you started that's when you went back to really look around in um uh with with more detail yeah about about mid-july when it became my property i did that deep dive it didn't take me long it only took me a couple weeks to realize that uh 
that this was this is something that needed to be handed over to the authorities immediately, uh, not just for my safety but for the safety of the nation. And the, and then in August, actually it was October 9th, my father approached the FBI in Albuquerque. Um, and uh, during this time, the impeachment hearings had begun. So now there was like an added layer of urgency because what I had seen on this laptop definitely would have exonerated the president of any impeachment trial. So uh, it was it was now an effort to give me protection, find some way to, to, to save my skin if somebody comes after me, get this criminality to the authorities, and then let's try to prevent the, the national embarrassment of, a, of an impeachment. So, did you talk? Did you talk about it to, with like any of your uh, friends or or you know fellow business, small uh, local business people in town? I mean, there had to be scuttlebutt about the Bidens going back, you know, generations. Was was this was he a topic of conversation at all? I I, I really did not want to talk about anything that had to do with the Bidens while that thing was uh, in my possession. I um, you know, I live in Biden territory, and right. uh, I, I was completely aware that if word got out of what I was trying to do, just trying to get criminality to the authorities, I would be run out of town on a pitchfork. So, and which is actually what happened. So it's kind of, uh, all my efforts to for self-preservation kind of failed. At the end. You know, there's been a lot of scuttlebutt about him with younger girls. Not, not We're not talking age appropriate. We're talking about minors. Did you see any of that on his laptop? Or is that just a rumor? Oh. Or so do you not know? I don't, I, I don't typically like talking about the contents of the laptop, especially when there's innocent people involved. Um, I will say that there, the levels that have been reported by several individuals to the tone of 80 gigs or 80,000 images of CP, um, that's a complete lie. Uh, there have been multiple attempts for individuals to insert fake data into this laptop to discredit the laptop. And unfortunately, a lot of a lot of people have bought into this idea that there is this tremendous amount of evil on this laptop. There's enough evil on the laptop. We don't need to make up any additional evil. Uh, as far as underage children, uh, there's, there's only the relationship with the niece that I saw that was incredibly inappropriate. What were they doing? Or do we have I, to find that out in your book? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to, again, talk about it. Okay. Um, the um, your dad goes to the FBI, and what happens? Uh, the FBI, he he says, "Here's the situation. My son's, you know, he has fears for his son's life." And the FBI says, "Oh, this sounds like a civil issue." Uh, questioned the uh, legality of the possession of laptop, and said, "Lawyer up and get out of our office." So it was. Uh, my father described it as the most humiliating experience of his life. Really, and that's when you. Um reached out to uh, Trump's counsel? No, not yet. Uh, My father and I were just kind of figuring out what we were going to do for about a month, and that's when uh, an agent, Joshua, reached out to my father in an effort to get a hold of me. Uh, We agreed, and in mid-November, two agents came to my house in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, They listened to my concerns. Uh, They once again refused to touch the laptop uh, with a 10-foot pole. then they uh, came to my shop on the December 9th with a subpoena, and they wanted everything. They wanted the paperwork, they wanted the drive, the, the backup, and and the laptop. So I was happy to give it to them. Uh, unfortunately, at the end of that interaction, that's when the, the one agent told me, after I kind of made a joke, said, hey, lads, I'll, I'll leave your names out of the book. And that's when Agent Mike turned around and told me that 
in his experience, nothing ever happens to people that don't talk about these things. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, so so now the FBI's got it, and then what happened? Mm-hmm. Well, I was waiting patiently during the entire impeachment trial for this laptop to materialize uh, as, uh, for the White House's defense. And at the end of the uh, impeachment trial, I realized that the, the FBI cared more about protecting the Bidens than they did about ever providing me any protection uh, or acting on the criminality on the laptop. And my biggest fear was now I had a, a large federal agency that knew I was sitting on this laptop and knew what I knew. And they were obviously running interference with the Bidens. So that's when I sent, I sent my father and my uncle, who was also a retired colonel in the Air Force, to uh, reach out to members of Congress. Because keep in mind, at this time, I was convinced that I could keep my identity a secret. I could do the right thing and not get caught doing the right thing. So... Uh, Sent my father and uncle off. They've been made multiple attempts over uh, 2020, spring of 2020 to uh, reach out to members of Congress. Unfortunately, there was this uh, thing called a global pandemic going on. And I think Congress was so paranoid of being wrapped up in Russia, uh, disinformation or whatever, that they were, um, you know, our, our cries for help were fell on deaf ears. And it wasn't until August of uh, mid-August of 2020 that I decided to trade my fear for courage and reach out to Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a lawyer for the president of the United States. And I tried the Justice Department. I tried Congress. So I figured the executive branch was uh, our next place that I had to alert. And, uh, and you, you mentioned... Um just to fast forward, because we know a lot of the rest of the story has now been made public, but that backstory and the timeline is really important. Um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you if people knew you would have been run out of town on a rail and that happened anyway. By the way, I also love the characterization. I was trying to get away with doing the right thing. <laughs> what a commentary that is on where we are getting getting away with doing the right thing. And I know what you mean, but it's just a funny way to say it. Um, uh, so what happened to you in town? What, what, where Where do you stand now? Well, uh, October 14th, the New York Post broke the story. About 30 minutes later, I started getting death threats. Uh, I was able to keep my business open for probably about three weeks before it just got so, you know, kind of hairy that I had to get out of there. I I closed up my shop, and then I was on a plane out to Colorado, uh, where I pretty much stayed in hiding for about a year. Oh, my God. And where are you now? Are you still... Or do you not want to say undisclosed location? Undisclosed location. Well, do you feel safe, or do you feel like you're still being uh-huh. spied on? Oh, I, I am. I am definitely uh, keeping my head on a swivel. Now, I after so I tried to go up against Twitter uh, in a lawsuit last year. Uh, I was defeated and uh, punished by Twitter. Uh, the lawsuit was thrown out, um, and I was Twitter was awarded all the legal fees with the Florida slap statute. And that, that maneuver was designed to, like, just completely destroy me financially and, and, and make me in a, uh, take away my ability to defend my actions or hold those accountable in a court of law. So I, fearing bankruptcy, I had to move back to Delaware because if you don't occupy my home, I'm, I can lose it. So I've been hiding in Delaware now for about a year and uh, just kind of keeping my head down. I don't go out of the house too much. I live 10 miles from Joe's house, and, uh, you know, I got... Uh, and, uh, publications like the Washington Post putting out a hit call on Bob Alinsky and myself saying that we're key witnesses to this in the congressional investigation. So, yeah, no, I don't leave the House right now at all. So, what, it's, uh, 
Um, and 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 um, uh, yeah, I mean, not leaving the house. It's that, that's tough. That's no so way to live. But but you, were, were you political at all before this happened? I mean, do you have um, were you you involved in any way, or or do you have perspective? No, no I, you know, politics weren't really the things that gravitated me towards other people. Uh, I'm, I'm a creative person, and my background, I like fixing Max because I like helping people. And I love being a part of my community, and, and luckily, politics really never played into any of that. And uh, so I it really, I mean, I, I grew up conservative. I have conservative values. I have a lot of liberal values. Um, I think the, the term we used to use back in the day, which you're not allowed, you have to pick a side now, is uh, fiscally conservative, socially liberal. But yeah, yeah. Again, now so, you got to pick a side. So, but but I mean, there was no, there's like no animosity towards the Biden family. There's no, was there, was there any thinking about the Biden family? You just, obviously, they're the part of the landscape where you are in Delaware, but otherwise, um, no interaction, no interest, no animosity. Well, you know, the fact that Hunter decided to uh, go on national television saying that he didn't know that it was his laptop, it could be Russian, it could be stolen, definitely didn't help my case. So, uh, you know, I, I guess that's why I've included Hunter on my my latest lawsuit, as well as the campaign to elect Joe Biden. Good okay. for you. Well, I know. So that's 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 after everything happened. But prior to Hunter Biden walking in that fateful day, there was no interaction, oh. right? What? I, I really it was so low on my care level. I would have sat on it by accident. Mm hmm. John Paul McIsaac, the computer repair shop owner in Delaware, who, as you just heard the story, came upon Hunter Biden's laptop, his new book. American Injustice, My Battle to Expose the Truth. American Injustice, My Battle to Expose the Truth. John Paul McIsaac, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good luck to you. Thanks for having the show, and uh, have a great week. Thanks, you too, and I'm definitely going to buy the book. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.